Welcome to the Proven Path Podcast. Today we have Chris Bird, does a lot of financial planning, does a lot of retirement planning, and does a lot of tax information for the CRS membership. Chris, tell me a little bit about retirement planning. Well, I think it's a, it's a proven fact, Mike, that a lot of realtors are doing very well in their real estate practices. Some are not, but many are just not putting enough away for retirement. And I've, I've, I've coined a, a phrase, you can't retire on income, you've got to retire on assets. So what is that asset base that uh, realtors, or for that matter, any self-employed person, is accumulating so that they have an asset base to retire on when they want to sell less real estate and have more fun with their lives. So is that retirement base going to be stocks? Is it going to be mutual funds? Is it going to be bonds? Is it going to be CDs? Is it going to be residential rental property? I mean, I'm not really so focused on what it is as much as is is it there in the first place. And, and our listeners need to know that there are some retirement plans that they can use in the tax code that will literally knock their socks off in terms of how much money they can put away every year all tax deductible if they have the wherewithal and the discipline to do it. For example, the SEP IRA, the Simplified Employee Pension IRA, has been around for, for as long as I've been around. And that has limits. And there are also limitations on, on what you can do with that money. For example, you cannot borrow from any plan that includes the three letters IRA. But the new kid on the block is, so, is the so-called 401k for the self-employed. And it goes by several names. Single K, solo K, self-employed 401k, it doesn't matter, all right? So Edward Jones will have a different name for it than Schwab will have, than Prudential, but it's all the same thing. But the 401k allows the self-employed person to put away substantially larger amounts of money in most cases than the SEP IRA comparative. And furthermore, if the realtor or the self-employed person ever needs to access those retirement plan monies on a temporary basis, like for a loan or something, a 401k can be borrowed against, a SEP IRA cannot be borrowed against. And clearly, no financial uh, planner might and I'm a certified financial planner, but no financial planner wants a client to borrow in their retirement plan. But my motto has always been that they will put more money away in a retirement plan if they know they can get at it if push came to shove. So I've been all over the country trying to put realtors into 401ks for the self-employed for the last five or six years because that's about how long they've been out. And one last comment, Mike. The the newest kid on the block is the so-called Roth 401k. So you can't have a Roth uh, 401k with a SEP IRA, but you can have a Roth 401k with a 401k for the self-employed. So the newest kid on the block, the Roth 401k, allows the self-employed individual to put some of the money away on an after-tax basis, the Roth concept, which grows tax-free instead of tax-deferred. So if I have any message for our listeners, Mike, it's what's their plan? You can't retire on income. you got to retire on assets. So what are they doing to put money away every single year if they can afford to? Well, let's get back to that uh, 401k. I want to take some money out. I want to purchase some rental property with it. You say I can borrow against it. My 401k uh, for the self-employed is with a company called Edward Jones. And Okay, and that's not a pitch. That's just where it is. 
if I wanted to buy real estate with my 401k, they would absolutely put the stop to it because my plan with them does not allow me to do it. So what I would have to do, Mike, is I would have to set up a separate 401k with a company like Intrust or Sterling Trust or Pensco or any of the other companies called Special Asset Trustees. Then I'd need to move my money over to them so that they would permit me to buy real estate. Now, back to your original question. If I literally borrowed money against my 401k, now let's keep the real estate out of it for just because that's a separate issue. But if I borrowed money for from my 401k, for what? For a medical emergency, for a unpaid tax liability, I have to amortize the loan back to Edward Jones over a period not exceeding 60 months at an interest rate of anywhere right now from 1% to 4% is the rate. And generally what you'd want to do is you'd want to set up the highest rate because you're borrowing against your retirement plan, and that's the return on your loan to your own retirement plan. So why would you make it 1% when you could pay yourself back 4% and have that growth in your earnings? Now, one more thing. There are limitations on how much you can borrow, just so our listeners have the full scoop. You cannot borrow more than the lesser of $50,000 or 50% in the plan value. So if the plan, if you had $150,000 in your 401k, $150,000, you could only borrow $50,000. And then you have to pay it back over no more than 60 months. If you had $80,000 in your 401k, you could only borrow 40000 And again, the 60-month payback. So there it is in a nutshell. Excellent. So let's shift over. Got a question from Eric in Chicago. He wants to know, is it a good time to buy or is it a good time to pay down debt? Well, that, that depends on a lot of factors. It's a great question. It comes up all the time. First of all, if they have a propensity to own rental property and deal with tenants and all of this, because they've got to get their mind in that mindset. Because some people, Mike, as you know, just do not want to deal with problems. They don't want to deal with calls late at night, things like that. And and if, if that's their case, I would say take the $50,000 and pay down their debt on the house. And I'll guarantee you this, uh, Dave Ramsey, everybody knows the name Dave Ramsey, would totally agree with what I just said. However, if these people have a little bit of initiative, a little bit of drive, and don't mind late night calls and things like that, I would recommend that they go take a look at a really good property in their area with the thought of putting $50,000 down and buying a rental property. I really would. And one other thing, if I may say this, for, for say this from just a humor standpoint, many of our listeners, Mike, are inhibited in investing because of somebody in their life that doesn't want to do it. So they could have a very conservative husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend that says, I don't care. I don't want to own rental property. And my advice in all the CRS 204 courses about that issue is then do it anyway on your own and then prove to them it's a good investment. So one more comment, Mike. Let me, let me go one step further with this if I may too. Now let's take your question and go one step further. Let's say that a couple already owned rental property, had $100,000 in a bank CD making them 1%. 
and they've already got other rental property and their debt on their home is reasonable and a low rate as well, probably in the three to four percent range. Now the question becomes they want to buy rental. Do they buy one for cash for $100,000 or do they buy two putting two $50,000 heavy down payments? And it's a matter of running our five forms in our wonderful CRS 204 course. It's about the effect of positive leverage. Let me say that again. It's the effect of positive leverage, being able to use a bank to get in bed with you on buying those two properties at a very reasonable rate of 5 to 6%, generating a rate of return of 13, 14, 15%. That's positive leverage when the rate of return significantly is more than the cost of the borrowed money. That's positive leverage. Those, those forms would tell you to always buy the two and use bank debt than to buy one for $100,000. Great. Just a reminder, if you have any questions on any topics that are keeping you up at night, send those via email to solutions at crs.com. So a question has just come in from Ann from Albuquerque. She has asked, is there a crystal ball on tax code? We're coming into an election year. Give us your crystal ball on tax code. Well, let me go back one year, if I may, Mike. Um, first of all, the, the discussion toward the middle to the end of 2010 was, should we hold our assets that we're thinking about selling, or should we sell our real estate assets or stocks or mutual funds if in 2010, because of the concern about rising capital gain rates taxes in 2011. Well, it took Congress and the president until December 17th of 2010 to pass a law that basically extended the 2010 rates for another two years, 11 and 12. So then what we've done is now we've put off that knee-jerking until a year from now. It's now 2011. So a year from now, 2012, middle to late, people are going to be doing the same thing next year that we did back in 2010. Should we sell or should we keep? Because what are rates going to be in 2013? Well, in my opinion, like to answer your question, uh, I, I cannot see how tax rates cannot go up, especially for the two highest marginal tax rates, which are currently 33 and 35%. I see those going to 36 and 40%, you know, give or take a percent here and there. I've also read articles that Congress wants to pare down our current six tax rates to two or three and lower them for the lower percentage of people, the lower tax rates, but up them for the higher tax rates. But the capital gains rates uh, look like they're going to go up, especially if a single person makes over $200,000 of adjusted gross income or a married couple makes over $250,000 of adjusted gross income. So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, okay, that's not going to affect me. And statistically, that doesn't affect most of the people in the country. But, you know, you sell a rental property at $100,000 gain, right? Or, or you have a uh, uh, a large uh, income in one year, you could be surprised to not be uh, above those limits and then have something extraordinary happen to you and to take you above those limits. But I cannot see, and, and I, I've been a student of tax law for the last 35 years, I cannot see how a lot of our listeners are not going to see 
larger tax bills down the road. And let me go one step further with this. Congress, uh, at least the IRS, is making a concerted effort in auditing S corporations. And a lot of our listeners are S corporations. And for those that are S corporations, they all know that the issue is only salary is subject to Social Security taxes, while the other profits called distributions are not. Well, there's a concerted effort by the IRS, and I believe eventually by Congress, to actually change the law on S-corporations, which is going to mean higher Social Security taxes on a lot of our listeners, which is nothing short of higher taxes overall. So to, to our listeners that are doing well, I, I think clearly uh, we're going to see higher taxes down the road, probably sooner than later. What does sooner mean? Minimally 2013, maybe 2012, but we're not, we're not looking at 2020. It's going to be before those dates. So my point to our listeners is if you are already making good income, expect higher taxes down the road. What's the best way of interviewing financial planners? Well, number one, the uh, financial planners come in two models, Mike. They come in fee-based and they come in commission-based. And a lot of people want to deal only with fee-based financial planners. Well, you know, we're realtors. We, we earn commissions. And if anybody thinks they're overpaid uh, on the percentage commission that they earn, uh, I doubt they do. So don't be concerned about a commission-based financial planner. But understand this. Our listeners need to understand one point. No financial planner is going to help them with real estate investing. They're only going to be able to help them with the conventional stocks and the bonds, the mutual funds, the things that they do. So be aware of that fact and then try to find somebody that you can that you can trust. And what they don't want to do, Mike, is they don't want to respond to ads. They don't want to respond to yellow pages things like that. The best way to find a financial planner is talk to their successful peers in their office. Who do they use? And that's the same way they find a good CPA or an accountant like an EA, or the same way they find an attorney. You don't respond to advertising. You respond to good peer review is the way you do it. And then you establish a trust with that person, and that's the way to go. One more comment though, Mike. Too many people, and I run into this in my financial planning seminars all over the country, they trust a financial planner to take care of their financial future. Absolutely the worst mistake they can make. They have to, every single year, watch how their portfolio is doing, whether it's real estate, whether it's stocks, whether it's mutual funds, whatever. They've got to look at it every single year, and they just can't trust the financial planner to handle everything. I'll give you a good example. In 2008, when every one of our portfolios dropped 42% in value. And many of us have come back since then. We haven't made a lot on it, but we've come back since then. I say that all of these people, these financial advisors and these brokers, are, are primarily asset gatherers. They're not really watching the markets. So one thing that I would advise, if, if anyone's got a portfolio of three or four or $500,000 in stocks and mutual funds, maybe they want to talk to an asset manager who basically charges, for example, 1% of their value every single year. And these people are not interested in what they buy and 
in what they sell. But these people are more watching the markets and will say something like this. You know, it's time to get out of some of these domestic companies and let's go international. Or it's time to take some of your portfolio and let's get into heavy cash for a period of time. And you just be, be wary of the typical financial advisor that just watches the market. So don't be afraid of a asset manager. And this is not for everybody, all right, because it's more expensive. But, you know, don't be afraid of an asset manager and when they recommend to move and things like this. Well, we just had an email come in from John in Tennessee who says uh, he's been to a lot of your seminars, Chris Bird, and he wants to know what are you doing now? Are you buying investment properties? Are you putting money away? Are you buying down debt? Uh, well, actually, I'm doing a combination of all of that. Uh, I just happened to sell a property of mine in Casper, Wyoming. And the best time to sell, Mike, is when there's a better alternative use of your money. So I just happened to sell a property of mine that I've owned five or six years in Casper, Wyoming. Did very well with it, but I thought better somewhere else. Uh, I'm also selling a property I own in Kansas City, Missouri. It's listed with uh, with a realtor right there, Michael Maher, in, uh, in Kansas City. And what I'm doing with that, is I'm paying off some debt that I want to pay off, but I'm always looking, Mike, right now for short sale and foreclosure properties in my own town of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. So I'm doing a combination. Now, I'll go one step further. Um, and boy, I almost hesitate to say this, but uh, with my stock and mutual fund portfolio, uh, I've gone to a pretty heavy cash position in the last six months. Uh, my wife and I have decided that we're just going to sit out this market for the next six months. And we may very well lose on what we could have gained in the stock market. But I've just got some personal uh, problems with with a lot of things going on in this country and, and, and internationally where I feel better in cash right now in terms of stocks and mutual funds than I do in stocks and mutual funds right now. And, and let me guarantee this, Mike, or some of our listeners, please do what you think is best. Don't do what Chris Bird did, because I don't want a bunch of financial planners calling me, screaming at me over me telling you over the media that I've gone to cash, because I've heard enough verbiage about this already, but I have. Are you out of your mind? Uh, and that's good. That, that's exactly what they're, they're going to say. All right. And you have <laughs> to feel comfortable with this. That, that's the point. You know, and what I want to do, Mike, is I want to be wrong. I want to see the stock market go up by 2000 points in the next year. I want to miss that. All right. But I just personally don't think it's going to. Are you buying gold? You know, that, that, that's a really interesting question. And let me, let me answer it this way. I wish I had bought a lot of gold uh, 10 years ago. But no, I'm not a doomsdayer. And that's, that's, in my opinion, a doomsdayer type of issue. But if people are going to buy gold, go into the, uh, it's either gold.com, I think. And they're going to buy shares in gold stocks and gold mutual funds, things like that. Uh, I'm not good enough, Mike, to tell you a year from now where gold will be. I mean, <clears throat> I can listen to the same advertisements that you say that gold will be at $2,000 in another year, and it's at $1,500, give or take, right now. Um, who knows? But no, I'm not heavily into gold. I've got some gold stocks, but I'm not heavy into gold. In terms of what our listeners should be trying to invest in, above all, invest in what they understand. If they don't understand and they don't, they don't comprehend and they don't feel comfortable in stocks and mutual funds, stay away from it. 
right? If they feel safe in real estate, if they understand real estate, stay in real estate. So the old issue about be diversified and all this, if they don't understand stocks and mutual funds, then buy real estate, but buy different kinds of real estate. And maybe buy in your town in different subdivisions so you're not too centralized in one area. There's ways to diversify even within a given real estate portfolio. But don't let some uh, financial planner say they've got to buy stuff that they don't understand because real estate is a bad investment. I heartily disagree with that. So we just had an email come in from Nick in New Jersey who says you're planning on buying uh, short sales and foreclosures in your own area. Do you have a team of people that fix these up? Are you fixing them up to rent? Are you fixing them to flip? I'm a I'm a buy and hold guy. All right, very seldom, and I've I've done some some flips in my life. You know where we've stuck some money into it, and the last flip I did was in 2003 and did very well at it. But usually it's a buy and hold, and one of the reasons for that is you try to buy low, put what in put what you need into it, obviously to to bring it up to good rental value, and then keep it minimally a year, Mike, so that when you sell you can get the favorable capital gains treatment. But the other issue is. Is that if you if you buy these right and they rent well and rents are up in this country, all right? The key there is getting good positive cash flows, and that's that's monthly mailbox income. So you know to to have a combination of both in your portfolio, some that you flip, some that you keep. But I would always tell people to try and keep some of them to keep that money coming in every single month. So Bob from Atlanta just emailed in, too. He says that uh, there are a number of foreclosures down there. Are you finding your foreclosures are in good shape? Are they in bad shape? Uh, what are you seeing around? It depends on the market, and every one of them is different. But I'll give an example. Uh, uh, my wife and I own several properties in, in Fort Myers area. I've heard that uh, uh, from a good friend of mine that does a lot of this. <clears throat> his name is Rick Larson. Uh, he was telling me the other day that many of the short sale and foreclosures that are still left down there are simply toxic. And that's because they've had that giant Chinese drywall issue that I'm sure you've read about that literally requires you to gut all the way down to studs and start over again with electric plumbing right down the line. But every one of them is different. And one of the problems with foreclosures is sometimes you don't really get a good look at them before you buy them. And uh, it just is, it's, it's in the eyes of the beholder, Mike, what you've got to do. Uh, some, you don't have to do much. Others, you've got to really do a start over. What's the best way to see Chris Bird coming in the future? Uh, Mike, I uh, do CRS 204 courses for CRS uh, periodically around the country, um, as well as I do many, many tax and financial planning seminars for various boards. One way to do this is go to my website, chrisbirdseminars.com, and check out my calendar. I have a detailed uh, uh, calendar of where I am on a given date. My personal email is chrisbirdseminar at aol.com if they'd like to do that. And I'm not going to give my phone number but uh, they can get me that uh, through that. And I'm on the road about 130 to 140 days a year doing this. So listeners, if you've got a really good question, just be persistent with me on my email or my website, and I will do my best to get back to you. I want to thank you for joining us today on the Proven Path podcast, uh, brought to you by the Council of Residential Specialists. We've had Chris Bird. Thank you, everyone, and uh, enjoy your selling season. The opinions expressed here are the views of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Council of Residential Specialists. Thanks for listening to the Proven Path Podcast. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for the show, send an email to solutions at crs.com.